streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. I'm your host, Tony Levitt, back with another exciting podcast ahead of us with our co-host, Jerry Meyer. Jerry Meyer, obviously, college basketball's all-time assist king, our philosophizer-in-chief, and uh, someone who is more than willing to uh, hear and answer your questions. As you all know, we've got a brand new Twitter account. We've got 20, at 247CBBpod. And uh, if you hit us up with the hashtag 247CBB, we've got questions for Jerry. Jerry, we've got a big show ahead. Are you ready? I am ready. So, so today we're going to talk about a very exciting innovation in college basketball broadcasting. We've got uh, the release of the McDonald's All-American rosters and, and a curious end-of-game situation, which I think will uh, lead into a conversation about your basketball philosophy. Um, but first, obviously... It was a tragedy in the basketball world this week. A helicopter crash involving Kobe and Gigi Bryant, John Altabelli, his wife Carrie, their daughter Alyssa, Christina Mauser, Sarah Chester and her daughter Peyton, and a pilot, Arizobayan. And, you know, obviously for most of us, the biggest impact is the loss of Kobe Bryant, a legend in the basketball and sporting worlds. And so, you know, Jerry, I'm personally still working through my thoughts and it's a complicated issue as I know you'll get into but I'm just going to turn over the floor to you and let you talk about Kobe for a minute tragic event and don't even really know what to say about it as you know tragic like we see many tragedies in life but in particular with Kobe since we're talking basketball here and the basketball player he was um Always found him kind of fascinating. This has been interesting to me to talk about working through it. Like I've watched a ton of Kobe stuff now. And so one thought is, dang, he was good. <laughs> like how soon we forget that I had a similar experience. I was looking at Penny Hardaway uh, footage and highlights from earlier in his career. And it, and it kind of blew my mind again. And I had watched Penny play in high school uh, in the Tennessee State Tournament. But it's it's interesting how you forget, and guys get older. We were talking about Lamar Odom last weekend. And so you, you get an image of guys when they're older, but they play a long career. But wow, was he good. Wow, was he athletic. And tremendous player. And then I just find him fascinating because he's a mixed bag. You know, is he arrogant or is he confident? You know, is he a jerk or is he just does he just push his teammates and make them better? And I think what we have to understand in sports, it's 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 every, it's all that. Um, I'm sure a lot of, and I, it's been documented. A lot of a lot of Kobe's teammates did not really like playing with him, but then at the same time, they realized how he pushed them, made them better. And it was kind of like that coach you had, who, man, you know, he really. There's a lot of things I couldn't stand about him, but at the end of the day, wow, you know, he got the best out of me, made me better. Um. Because often we want to turn players and athletes into saints or we want to turn them into villains. And, you know, Kobe's just a regular human being who is terrifically gifted at basketball and a very smart human being and kind of embodies every human characteristic 
to me in a way. So I find him very fascinating in that regard. And I don't feel a need to say, oh, Kobe's perfect. Oh, Kobe did this. Kobe was a jerk. This, that, or about Kobe. Yeah, but, I mean, just celebrate the whole thing. You know, he, he was selfish at times. I watched his 60-point game. He shot it, what, how many times? 40. And that's what that game was about. But there, were, there have been legit criticisms of Kobe for not passing the ball or being selfish. Sometimes that's what goes with the territory if you're going to have an alpha, unbelievable, top-of-the-game type competitor. Like you said, you know, watching back some of Kobe's stuff, and obviously ESPN re-aired the 60-point game, you know, one thing that gets lost in the conversation about that final game, and I certainly had forgotten this, you know, when people asked me, I said, yeah, but he shot it so many times, of course he was going to get those buckets. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then you look and you see in the last two minutes, he got 13 points on effective shots. And and that, in any moment in a basketball game, that's that's incredible. You know, 13 yeah. points in two minutes, uh, when you talk about a game that was still in the balance. Sure, makes, yeah, I mean, makes it came it, back and won. Yeah. Makes it, makes it all, all the more so. Well, one thought on that, too. <clears throat> You know, he starts the game out looking horrible. Five misses, at least, a turnover. He shot like four air balls, I believe, in that game. But that just is part of They talk about the Mamba mentality. <clears throat> That's part of it. Um, I called it the shooter's mentality. <laughs> when you miss it, you forget. When you make it, you remember. And uh, Kobe certainly embodied that. So many, so many more thoughts about Kobe left unsaid here, left unsaid you know, by Kobe himself, by Gigi, by the family. You know, it's going to take the basketball world a tremendous amount of time to uh, process this loss. And so, you know, we're just going to leave a a bit of a break here, almost a moment of silence uh, for Kobe and all those who lost their lives in the uh, tragic helicopter crash last Sunday. So one thing that you know, would have been nice in that last Kobe game, those 60-point game, is to, to hear what he was thinking, what this team was thinking inside their thought process. You know, what what was what were they trying to get out of that game? They were still trying to win. They, that was a team that was borderline playoff contention, I think. And Fox Sports has a, a very exciting innovation, Jerry. And, and that is they've been doing this for the past couple of years, a game here, a game there, but they're expanding this uh, an idea that they will be cutting commercials from select Big East, Big 12 basketball games and letting the viewers in on the coaches' huddle. So I, I'm going to turn over the floor to you. You know, what are your immediate thoughts right here, and, and what you know do you think will this hinder coaches in the huddle? Will this uh, be an opportunity for people at home to really learn something? You know, what are your thoughts with this with this new broadcast technique? Uh, well, <clears throat> initially, anything with less commercials. I'm all for it. That sounds great. What are they going to do, like do two boxes or something? I imagine they'll take turns going from team to team. Well, I mean, are they really just going to lose commercials, or are they going to put them up like in a little box? Oh, I'm I'm not sure. something like that. um, That's a a good call. uh, Yeah, I mean, sounds interesting. Uh, One thought, a lot of fans might be disappointed and realize their coach isn't the genius they thought he was. Because I've been in some timeouts, and sometimes, what you, and it's not always that the coach isn't smart. It's just like, what what do you say? Like you kind of say the obvious. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of fans going, I could I could I could have done that. I could have been the coach. Well, you 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 could have said those words. <clears throat> like we all know it needs to be done, but <clears throat> you, you know we've been working on this play for three months. If you haven't been able to yeah. learn it now, what am I going to be able to yeah. do for you? <laughs> There'll be a lot of come on energy. We need to get back on D rebound. You know, you know, 
the, the good stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I would not think you're going to see a lot of plays drawn up <clears throat> because I would assume the coaches will keep the cameras out. And I like it's interesting to me the logistics of it, how they'll decide when they're in the huddle, when they're not. Do the coaches have jurisdiction over that? I would think. I mean, can the coach say no? We ain't doing this. I don't know. Usually, like the NBA broadcast, when they when they uh, play on tape delay, the coaches huddles. They usually, you know, coaches have someone who will say, "I'm sorry, you can't use that." Um, And so I don't know. You know, supposedly they're going to be having just about all of the of the uh, coaches' huddles, uh, you know, on on the mm-hmm. broadcast. So I'm not exactly sure how yeah. logistically it'll work out. One thing that came to mind was last week you mentioned that, you know, for Kentucky, Ashton Hagens, uh, you know, ran the huddle. Um, you know, I think that's something that could be really interesting to see oh, which players see dynamics. which yeah. players are stepping up, which players are kind of quiet and listening. And which it, players are not listening. <laughs> <laughs> which players are sulking. Which players are crying and bitching to the assistant coach? You know, head coach don't like me. <laughs> I mean, it could be really interesting. I, I'm intrigued on how they'll handle the logistics of it because sometimes a timeout huddle can be crazy. More times than not, it's pretty mundane. So we'll see what happens. People will talk about how much they love basketball, how much they love whatever sport, but it's the interpersonal stuff that keeps people engaged and involved, What you know, whether or not their team is winning. Uh, and and yeah. this is a, a real, potentially an exciting insight into the mindset and, and planning of these players and the logistical ins and outs of, of having a 15, 20-person team uh, that spends nearly their entire yeah. life together for a year. And that's that's a complicated well, dynamic. It's very intriguing. It made me look, think back on my childhood because my dad was a coach and you know, until I started <clears throat> competing on the same nights uh, his team was playing, I was the towel boy. I mean, I was right there on the baseline wiping the sweat, and then I was in on every time out. And I don't know, I just had a little personal thought there. That that really formed me as a basketball person. Like, I sat in so many college basketball timeouts uh, growing up. Uh, it could be a great thing for the fans. It could, be, it could be a very educational and, like you said, add a layer of insight with you know being able to view interpersonal reactions and to be able to view like how players are during the timeout. You know who's making eye contact, who looks like they're in another world, who's angry, who's who's being the guy encouraging his teammates. Uh, it would be some insight, I would think. Yeah, especially among the younger players, you know, these for the most part, most of these guys were the guy for the entirety of their lives until they got to college, and then re- it's it's an opportunity to see them readjusting for the most part, except for the stars, to new roles, new systems, new faces, and all that. And this past weekend, the 2020 McDonald's All American Game rosters were announced, and you know, these guys, obviously, the creme de la creme of the class of 2020, and you know, I imagine for that, for most of them, when they get to college. You know they aren't really going to be adjusting to new roles per se. You know these are still probably going to be stars. These are guys who are going to, um, you know, potentially make or break a season uh, for a team. But there, it's always exciting for the McDonald's All American roster. You know we've seen so many of our current NBA stars. You know played in the McDonald's game over the past few years. So Jerry, what were your initial impressions with the the 2020 McDonald's All American game roster? Um, I, for the most part, thought it was a good list. Agreed with the rosters. Um, Keon Johnson, the Tennessee signee, uh, unfortunately 
he didn't make the team, but I think that had to do with um, you got to play 50% of your games your senior year, and he did, he's been injured, did not make that threshold. So I thought it was unfortunate for him because he had such a great – he's been on such an uprise as a prospect uh, since the end of last well, – last summer, he really tore it up. So, you know, I feel bad for him. But other than that, um, looked like, you know – Solid group of guys. Like I, I, not, there, I didn't see any completely glaring omissions, or I can't believe he made the team. Which usually there's one or two of those every year, but I did not have that feeling this year. Yeah, and I mean there are there are a number of names that you've been mentioning over the past few weeks that we saw there. You know, Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Sire Williams, guys that you know you think are good prospects. No surprise there. And one thing I mentioned to you off air is that you know the the teams haven't been announced yet, but we see a number of guys going to Kentucky, a couple guys going to UNC, a couple guys going to Duke, and you know however the rosters shake out, chances are we'll see guys with their first opportunity to play together before they go to their school. And obviously it's an all star game setting, but it's still exciting to see these faces together for the first time. Um. Sure. Yeah, I, I think the practices are the best part. So that's interesting. So you get to see guys compete against the guys on their team, then in the game and the, the scrimmage they compete against guys on the other team. So uh, you can gain some insight. But a lot of people make mistakes. Um, you know, I've made it. I, I devalued Gary Harris a little too much because of how he looked McDonald's week. Um, I kind of – came off of De'Aaron Fox a little bit because I didn't like the way, you know, so I looking back at my scouting, you have to be really careful not to judge too much from the all-star games. And, and hopefully I've kind of learned from my mistakes. So those would be two of them I would mention. And then I thought everyone flipped out on Zion Williamson and, you know, thought Nasir Little was better and EJ Montgomery was better just because of how he looked McDonald's week. And I, you know, I really think that was a mistake. Yeah, you know, our football guys have been. It's been a heavy time in recruiting, and and a lot of those conversations surrounded guys who played at a lower level of competition in high school, and and these all star games being an opportunity to see them for the first time against elite competition. This question just came to me, but is there someone on this list who you think it's you know uh, you're excited to see them you know play against a higher level competition than they had in the past? Uh, not really. Is, is that is that they, not a they thing? Play travel ball against each other. Mm-hmm. With AAU, I guess I guess it really is different. That's a that's the difference between basketball and football in this case. Yeah, you don't. I mean, like Otto Porter would be a player that might fit into what you're talking about on the basketball realm because he did not play travel basketball, and so he would be that type of guy. I mean, this doesn't really relate to the All Star games, but like a Gordon Hayward, he did not play travel ball so anytime you get to see those guys play against you know in an all-star situation sure but man that's very 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 rare in basketball um just because you basically have three circuits and everyone who's good plays in one of those circuits Mm -hmm. and so it's not really an issue like it probably is in football all right, well, for those of you who are excited about the McDonald's All-American game, we'll be covering that as the teams are released and as we get closer to the game. But we're going we're gonna to take a quick break. And on the other side, we've got a question about fast breaks at the end of the game and end-of-game timeouts, uh, and then uh, uh, a couple parting words from our, our philosophizer-in-chief, Jerry Meyer. 
All right, and we're back. 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. I'm Tony Levitt. He's Jerry Meyer. And we always love your feedback. We love your uh, ratings and reviews. If you haven't had a chance to go on Apple Podcasts and give us some feedback, you know, what you like, what you don't like, you know, however you want to phrase it, we would love those five stars. Um, but always, always looking forward to uh, hearing from you guys, the listeners. But for now, Jerry, we've got to talk about Wake Forest versus Virginia. Wake Forest blew a significant, significant lead at home versus Virginia. And at the end of the game, we found ourselves going to overtime. And at the end of overtime, we found ourselves in a one-possession game in the final 30 seconds. And with Wake Forest down just one possession, they got a rebound and had a fast-break opportunity. Coach Danny Manning then elected to call a timeout after Wake Forest brought the ball over half-court uh, and ran a play, but Virginia's defense was set, and Wake Forest never got a shot off. And so I was curious after seeing this, you know, what's your philosophy on those kind of end of game situations? Let the guys play, call a timeout. How would you try to navigate that as a player? <clears throat> well, and then per- as a coach, yeah, I guess. Personally, I lean to the no timeout, let them play thing, but that's because I played in systems uh, that were built that way, and we liked the idea. We we. Tr- no, there's a thing of trust that in a scramble situation, we have the advantage and we'll make the better play. Uh, but then a lot of coaches, you know, obviously they have different systems, but they like they like the sideline out of bounds situation. You know, like they have their certain plays. They like they're comfortable doing that as a team. So it's a team by team thing. But personally, yeah, I lean to I'm, I'm pretty much don't call timeout guy. Well, I, used to, I, like, I like I was a point guard. I like to get it and go. <laughs> Let me make the play. And and one thing that really was just shocking to me is that like if Wake Forest was playing another kind of ACC bottom feeder, I'd understand. But we're talking about Virginia, who over the past decade has probably consistently been the best defensive team under Coach Tony Bennett. This year, literally, is the best defensive team, one of the best defenses in a while, and and. By calling a timeout, Danny Manning, you know, gave Virginia the opportunity to set their defense. And Virginia's a good fast break defense too. But I mean, once they get set, I mean, that's you know, practically you know, game well, over. This, this leads into another <clears throat> philosophical discussion, and uh, it's kind of like the the dichotomy or spectrum of how much do I weigh <clears throat> what my opponent does versus what we do. So I would say, I mean, that coaches are everywhere on that spectrum. But there's one extreme is, you know, we don't care for playing Virginia or who. When we get in this situation, this is what we do. You know, then there's another extreme of, well, we'll kind of do anything. We just base what we do based on our opponent. And I think most coaches lean kind of like we do what we do. But, yeah, the fact that Virginia is Virginia and, and their defensive prowess in a set, uh, offensive situ- uh, half court situation would be a factor, you know, in the decision making. But a lot of coaches are, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to do what what we feel comfortable doing, what our system does, what you know, what we've been practicing for, blah blah blah. But um, that's that's always a good uh, the whole discussion on you know because I I've been an assistant coach in multiple situations and. It's interesting to see how the head coach dealt with stuff like this. Like when I was at Vanderbilt with Van, Van Bredikoff, Jan Van Bredikoff, he we were all about scouting the opponent. I mean, we had like 80 different plays. We were changing this sort of game to game. 
that was a little foreign to me. I was not used to that. That's not how my dad coached. My dad was much more, you know, we scouted and we wanted to know tendencies, and but we were way more focused on ourselves. We wanted to just be great at what we do and make them adjust to us. Whereas Van Bredikoff was more an adjustment coach. We're going to adjust to our opponent and you can have success both ways. I, I do lean much more to let's just be great at what we do and worry less about the opponent and worry more about ourselves. So, so let's, let's assume for a second, just generally speaking, you know, we're, we're in the same kind of situation as Wake Forest was. We, we've uh, crossed half court. It's, you know, under 10 seconds, we've called a timeout and now we've got the sideline out of bounds, you know, with the chance to, you know, tie or win the game, either one, you got to make a bucket, you know, with you as a coach, are you looking to design an, you know, a side out of bounds play that will itself lead to, um, a bucket or are you looking to just get the ball in and then initiate a play from there? Uh. Me personally, run a play to get a bucket. <clears throat> Why not? And then if we don't get a bucket, have something else. But I'm not designing the play. We're going to run a play that we run in practice with time and score, with possibly winner gets this or loser has to do that. You know, that you try to create a heightened competitiveness in practice. But because I find that the, in college, man, if a coach – in a pressure situation, seven seconds, and I'm not saying this is what you were. I'm I'm segueing right now. <laughs> I'm going on a tangent, um, and I don't know if you can trust five college guys enough to draw up a play that they have not practiced and rehearsed, and expect them to execute that with any type of verve <laughs> or you know meticulousness. So I I think that's one. You know, and then I'm going to so you got I think it's huge to have worked on last second situations in practice, like over and over, where the players have faith and confidence in plays. And here's one of my huge pet peeves these coaches, many of them making millions of dollars, and there'll be two seconds left, three seconds left. The other team scores on them. They need to score in like three seconds, they don't have a timeout. And they just throw the ball in and shoot a 75-footer. you got to have a play prepared from in practice that the whole team knows on the fly we can get to certain spots and run some type of play to get you know to at least get a shot across half court. That bugs me. And I even see it after they call timeout. <laughs> There'll be a timeout. You're in the huddle, and then you'll come out and settle for a 70-foot shot. You know, with you say you got two seconds to inbounds the ball. I find that very disappointing. Um, you know, I – was around some great coaches in my life. And, you know, we did stuff like, hey, why don't we run like our under-the-basket baseline out-of-bounds play? Let's run that, but let's run it on the free-throw line on the other end we're trying to score on while we're inbounding the ball full court. And that's an innovative concept. So let's just act like the basket is at the top of the key. It's just a longer inbounds pass, and let's run the same out-of-bounds play we would run if the, if the basket was right there. there. There's all kinds of things you can do to get a good shot other than throw the ball 15 feet, he takes two dribbles, and then he heaves a 60, 70-footer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the other thing is that half the time when, when coaches do or do not uh, end up making play, you, you have players like coming back towards – towards the ball to and then and then you've got like take That's two seconds yeah you, 
Right. <laughs> take two seconds, turn around, and then and then shoot it from wherever you are, as opposed to you know catching the ball moving towards the basket that you're actually shooting on. That that's a huge one. You know, so much depends on how much time you have. But yeah, um, man, was it Michigan? Like two years ago, three years ago, they beat Houston in the in the tournament. They they diagrammed a great play. The guy caught it with his momentum going to the basket. Then I think he made one more pass. Up Swag- the court. Swaggy pool. Catch two, that three. Two seconds. I mean, I, when I was a high school coach, I was an assistant at this stage. Uh, we had 1.7 seconds left. Ball underneath the under, other team's basket. We ran our baseline out of bounds play. So we got a guy open, like right on the three-point line, doing like the basic box, screen the screener type action. And shot fake, one dribble. You know, he caught it maybe like 30 feet from the basket. <clears throat> shot fake, one dribble. Boom, game winner. I mean, that's a lot of time. Two seconds is a lot of time to get something done. Mm-hmm. That's at least two basketball moves. And, you know, if, if, if I had to choose a guy, you know, not, you know it's, it's no, not interesting when you say, if I had to pick one person to, uh, to make my game-winning shot, I'd pick LeBron. I'd pick Kobe. I'd pick MJ. Like, obviously, if I wanted to do anything basketball, I'd pick those guys. But one guy who I think in the off the radar kind of area is Jamal Crawford. That dude is an awesome bucket getter. And I saw you tweet about him this week and I couldn't resist. I know this is a college basketball podcast, but I had to bring it up. Why no, do no, you no. love Jamal we, we, Crawford? We could talk about anything basketball. Why, why, why do you love Jamal Crawford? Because that dude, for me, he was just too um, swaggy, too swaggy. I like, I like his Twitter presence. Um, I liked him as a player. Uh, he was kind of like a a mini version of a Kobe, but he has that. I just love players with that six, six slinky and he gets you a shot. And, and, you know, kind of on that selfish or not selfish thing. We, we sort of alluded to, uh, with Kobe, all, all great scores, like say a Jamal cry, he's kind of a scoring specialist, you know, and I love those guys off the bench. That's kind of where he really made his name. He was a starter at times as well. But you, you have a different mentality than the other guys on the team. And so you have to earn their respect. And, you know, there has to be that context. I, I guess respect's the word. Where teammates respect each other that we're doing our job to try to help the team win. And, man, you know, like if I'm the rebounder, screen setter, defender, I sure wish I could take a lot of shots. But that's not my job, and it's, Jamal Crawford was the type of guy who could take a lot of shots and not always pass the ball that much because that was his role, but his teammates accepted it like, because he seems like a guy you would trust doing that. I don't know. I just like the guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just like him, man. Let's just say that. I'm, I'm, kind of a, I'm not a fan of a lot just because of the nature of my upbringing, being a coach's kid and all that. And then working in the business and being a coach. So, you know, fan was not really a thing in my family or in my life. But, yeah, I'm kind of a Jamal Crawford fan. Jamal Crawford just had crazy moves. Crazy moves. He had game, man. He was fun to watch. He absolutely was. And yeah, he, did, he did some people real dirty over the course of his career. So that that's that's just about it for us, Jerry. You got any parting words? I well, know you watched Zion this week. Uh yeah, three things, Zion, but two before that, um, 
Has anything happened with the official who bumped into the Tennessee head coach? I saw that. I haven't. Barnes, I haven't had Barnes. a chance to really look into it. Yeah, it I looked, don't think they've said anything yet. But man, I thought that was ridiculous. And I think something really needs to be done. If a coach were to have done that, oh my gosh! And the ref's supposed to be above that, even more so than a coach. You know, the ref's not supposed to be getting emotional. And been out of sh- I thought that was very strange. So I really, I do have my eye on that. I want to see what the SEC does with that. Uh, I thought the Coach K thing was hilarious, uh, where he's yelling at his own crowd. Yeah. And I just thought it was really weird. I mean, just because you went to Duke, played at Duke, coached at Duke. No, he's coaching Pittsburgh now. <laughs> you know? I thought that was re- maybe the brotherhood gone a little too far. And to see him just absolutely flip out like that. I, he has since it, apologized. It's, it's a little sur- good. Because um, that was really bizarre. And then Zion um, – you know, here's my thing on Zion. Obviously, you know, he's done what he's done, and everyone's pretty much aware of it. Uh, Mark Jackson kept talking about how he needs to lose weight. I don't know how the guy loses weight. Two thoughts on that. One, he's always looked this big to me, like back to his junior year in high school. He, was, he always had this huge pre- – and then his bone structure. How, where does he lose weight? That guy's got really wide hips. He's got wide shoulders. He's a broad – as a broad skeleton. <laughs> so I I don't know. I I didn't get a lot of that. I, I, Zion looks good to me. And the other thing I found strange, you know, like we're involved in the recruiting business, 24-7 sports. It's not all we do, but it's the major component. You know, one thing that sells for us is fans would like to have information and knowledge of the players that are coming to their school. So they have some type of idea and context when they first watch them play. And I was just astounded that um, the announcers during Zion's first game, like, were completely unfamiliar with them. <laughs> I'm not saying an NBA announcer needs to be watching college all the time. But I was I was a little shocked at that. <clears throat> like Zion just came out of nowhere, and oh my God, he's six six and he's two hundred and eighty five pounds. He, he's heavy. He, he's been that his whole life. I thought it was very curious to hear them saying things like that when Zion was still, even in his first game back from injury, the fastest one with the second jump off a rebound, often the fastest one to the block to go box out for rebound. And it, what they were saying seemed a bit in Congress with the things I was seeing on the court. Um, but that, Yeah, because that... they, they were just looking at his body. Zion is a freak, right? I've covered this guy since before his junior year in high school. He is very unique. Like, saying unique, I don't even feel does him justice. So it was just so odd to me. Yeah, I get it. Zion looks different. He walks different. You know, he always has limped. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's just a little mind-boggling. Do a little homework about these guys before you just judge them like every other basketball player. Zion is not every other basketball player. All right. Well, I, I can't think of a better thing to end on. I know you've been, you've been a big Zion guy for a long time. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it with that. This is the 24/7 Sports College Basketball Show. If you want to get involved in the show, tweet us at 247CBBPod with the hashtag hashtag 247CBB. I'm the host, Tiny Levitt. He's the king, all-time assist king, Jerry Meyer. This is the 24/7 Sports College Basketball. Signing off. Until next week.